Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Fabrice, hello and welcome to In the Know, the podcast hosted by me, Amal Sarva, the co-founder of No-Tell, where I interview the interesting people that I bump into. And of course, uh, Fabrice Grinda, famous angel investor, but little less known as famous entrepreneur. I guess just being so active as an angel, people talk to you a lot about investing. And so everyone's always yeah, like, hey, I angel, think- hey, angel. Hi. Give um, me money. <laughs> I mean, that, so your reputation usually, once you invest like three times, starts expanding well beyond your entrepreneurial reputation, it seems to me. Yeah, I think what happens is, look, I was CEO of OLX. I had like 350 million unique visitors a month. I had uh, 5,000 employees in 50 countries, but I was an investor at 100 startups. And so if you think of like the number of TechCrunch mentions or whatever, like, oh, angel investor, if I breeze around it. But like, if you look at my time allocation, it was like 90, 10, but 90 to running my business. And so people see me as investor just by virtue of the, how prolific I am as an angel. And you have just a ton of huge hits, dude. It's not just the times you wrote the check, but the outcomes. I mean, just, I don't know what your favorite subset of it is, but like so many of the signature deals of the last decade, uh, your name was in those exits. Well, I think it also helps to be in so many of the deals, but yes, I... Uh, I, I mean, I've got a hundred. I don't have <laughs> your hundred. You have a, a better hundred, evidently. <laughs> Yeah, I think I have 500. I think that's also the... Oh, good, okay. Yeah, no, we made 500. Yeah. That was back in 2013 when I was like, oh, what do I do after OLX? Uh, and people saw me as both those things. And I said, you know what? I like being both of those things. And so I'm going to create a structure that allows me to do both of those things. And, but yeah, no. In terms of the... What's also interesting is like a lot of the companies we invested in that did really, really well, for the most part... Or not nearly as well known, uh, either because they're like in in Europe. So Delivery Hero, which is like the seamless Grubhub of Europe, yeah, it's one of the biggest IPOs yeah. in Europe. And yeah, it's like seventy billion valuation. We invested two pre, or you know, a company like Byroll, where invested at the very beginning, we sold for Yahoo for six hundred forty million. Billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we made like I don't know sixty three extra money, but like most people would not necessarily know these companies. The more well known ones would be things like Alibaba, but. Alibaba is, even though it's core thesis, we're marketplace investors, it's a marketplace. Um, we invested later, I mean, not super late stage, we invested like $5 a share, but the later than we typically invest. And so it's not our prototypical investment, even though we did extraordinarily well in that investment. And so I'm, you know, a bit loth to like use it as like the, the prototypical investment we make. Yeah, and we were just gossiping about Open Door, which is another fabulous momentum company that is already very valuable and will be much more valuable. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that in your, you know, the spreadsheet you use to track these things are a, a zillion more gems. But I mean, the, the development of your angel strategy also is, is partly testimony to that. It, you used to do first check, earliest, whatever. And now you're basically like a all strategy, all weather, you know, barbell style firm that's able to not call really, in other capital. Actually. No, 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 not really. I mean, the clearly venture capital as a whole has been going later and later stage and writing bigger and bigger checks. And people have been raising more and more money. And I think that's probably driven by the fact that the fee structure is is more compelling if you have if you have a billion under management than if you have a hundred million under management. No, mostly in my life, I've invested seed and 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 in fact, I've been used to do pre seed and looking at the trend where everyone's raising more capital and 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 everyone's investing like Series C, D, E, or like so massively oversubscribed because there are not that many companies that justify getting fifty million dollar investments. I actually decided to go in the other direction. Um, I didn't used to do pre seed. Now we also do. Uh, pre-seed investments and 
to date, you know, 70% of our investments receive pre-seed. Then we do also follow on and we do some A's and B's and we do occasional late, late stages. But the, I think the reason we're seeing is all weather is, yes, we'll invest in every industry in every geography at every stage and people were like oh my god that's crazy like but actually we're way more specific than that we are both thesis driven and we have very clear thesis that we invest in uh and business model driven together where they were given them mostly invest in marketplaces and uh and then we have a set of heuristics where we need all of the three top level heuristics of our evaluation of the team and we have a very clear definition of what a good team is for us our evaluation of the business which is mostly unit economic driven either theoretical or actual and our evaluation over the deal terms and where the valuation is all these three things need to be collectively true for us to invest in addition to the fact that ideally it needs to be a marketplace preferably in the u.s preferably at seed that meets your thesis people product market and financing so people the team Mm -hmm. that you like yeah Product? Not product, business. Business. How, attra- how attractive is the business? Um, and, and there's a number of sub-heuristics in there, like what's the total addressable market size with the business model. But frankly, it really ultimately for us comes down to what are the unit economics? At a What is the year fully loaded customer acquisition costs, uh, supply and demand, or multi-sided if you have a multi-sided marketplace? And what is your net contribution margin per customer over the first six month, 12 month, 18 month, and ideally LTV? Now, we often invest in companies that are pre-launch or that are launched six months ago. And so... And these may be theoretical, but you need to have a compelling story for what what this is going to be. It could be like, oh, the average order value in this industry based on numbers that we know is thus. The mm-hmm. average- you must have a rule of thumb then on uh, customer lifetime value over cost of yes. customer acquisition. And if that number is right, then the business Correct. model. Correct. So right. we, we need, ideally, you need to, well, not ideally, you need to recoup your CAC in six months. You need to 3x your CAC in 18 months. Uh, and if you're not there, you need to have a compelling story for why you're going to get there with scale or density or whatever it is. And ideally, you actually don't even know what your LTV is because you have negative churn, right? Like, so the best companies, yes, they may lose 20% of their customers, but the remaining 80% spend so much more that you have a negative churn. Think of Uber. Like, year one, you use it four times a month. Year two, you use it six times a month. Year five, you're using it 16 times a month, plus you're ordering Uber Eats. And yes, maybe they've lost some market share to Lyft, but the negative churn is such that the business is incredible. Who knows what the LTV is like? Mm-hmm. It's infinite. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> so people, product. So we, we do, I'm using my framework, and we're going to translate it to yours. So it's people, then business model, not product. Uh, market, to me, is... TAM, change in the TAM, is it a fast-moving well, category where people bus- are All decisions? this is in the business for you, category but, for me. Yeah, but, for you. Ma- is, but, yeah. For, but on our level yeah. four here, uh, market for you is marketplace. The mechanics of the business ought to be yes. a marketplace because this is what you know best. You've started nine companies in a row that are all a marketplace of this, that, or the other thing in one geography or all the geographies. There was Oakland yeah. and there was Terramate where you guys combined yeah. and then there was OLX which was every kind of market in every kind of city and then you did the car thing, I guess BB, BB and yeah. maybe this five. And then there's you got your offer up or what's that one? The, la- the labor? Let go. Let go. Yeah, and, and we build an open door for Canada called Properly and we're building uh, a blue-collar job site in New York called Merlin. And yeah, Merlin. Merlin, and that, I, I was yeah. talking to, I mean, the numbers on that sound amazing yeah, in a very amazing. short time. Yeah, well, well, I mean, the beauty of, like, marketplaces, that they have this chicken and egg problem in terms of, like, do you build supplier demand first? And by virtue of having been doing this for 21 years right now, I actually have a really strong 
perspective, depending on the vertical and the category of like how hyperlocal you go, which side do you start with, how much density do you need, what is the right business model? Like when you pick these things, it's like, okay, do you start supply demand? Is your business model a listing fee, an advertising model, a SaaS fee, or a rake? And if you're taking a percentage, do you take the buyer side or the seller side? What's the percentage that you take? I mean, all these things at this point, I think I kind of know the answer, and I've, I've had so much pattern recognition on the industries based on like elasticity of demand or supply. Um, and yeah. So if someone's built it, and, and then you have to judge an entry point, but when you are thinking of building it, it seems like every place that people spend money can lend itself to some kind of marketplace attack. Correct. And so you sit and boil the ocean and you look for certain indicators and think, okay, now it's time to do it over here? Like, how, what, what's their yeah, signal? Yeah, it's usually what is a large category where the current user experience is really broken? What's the low NPS and uh, no one's happy and where the economics ideally can be improved? And, and marketplaces have typically lead to better economics for everyone because they're lower cost structure. You're using on excess capacity of suppliers and, and, and you end up creating experiences that are delightful where everyone's really happy. Uh, and um, yeah, and so higher NPS, better economics, lower prices. And, and well, that's a screen. Businesses. That's a screen. So you let things come to you or you let inspiration strike you or you at a dinner party and you meet the right entrepreneur or do you literally go top down, boil the ocean, decide which ones, update your model every month and decide when to start? So a little bit of everything. So in terms of investing, we get 100 inbound deals a week. And so we don't really do any outbound. It's like the we we filter the we've created our processes for filtering the inbound deal flow, and it's more it's it's, it's more specific than that because every VC you talk to, for instance, like what is a good team? Um, you know, oh, I invest in the best team. So, but that doesn't mean anything. And so we have our own, for instance, perspective on like what is a good founder and what what are the skill sets and and the attributes we look for and how do we test for those? Um, in terms of so we filter in the inbound deal flow. In terms of companies we come up with to build, we top down. I, I on a regular basis, I come up with, I, I, do, I just think through what are the trends in the world? Like where we are technologically today? What are the things that are coming or are going to be coming? Because Moore's Law type dynamics are happening in, ver- in various categories. And what does that mean for the world and go forward basis? And as a result of that, what is a thesis that is investable based on the first order effects or the second order effects of these changes that are happening? Um, and so that's a general thesis and framework, but that's theoretical. And then we create um, with our team, and there's about 20 of us, we do brainstorms um, twice a year. Really? I take everyone to the Dominican Republic or to Turks and Caicos. Everyone has come up with business ideas. And uh, everyone, and, and so the last one was in February. We do one in February, one in July. We came up with 150 ideas. Now, from these 150 ideas, then the people that, then we go and dig deeper in a subset, well, then we rank them and we vote on like the ranking. And then we, on 20 or 30 of those, we do actual real research. You know, we'll write a like 10 page PowerPoint, we'll interview clients, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we think there is a need and a solution. If we, if they, if the, if the problem is as interesting as we thought it was, and if we know how to answer the solution. Now, in that process, most of the ideas die. Uh, but a few of them, we really like them enough that we get to, okay, let's do a real 25-page PowerPoint as though we were pitching ourselves as entrepreneurs coming in raising for money. We'll actually do landing page analysis, uh, base ba- back-of-the-envelope CAC and, uh, and LTV models, and really interview who the clients are, the demand is, and like really see if there's something there. Most ideas that are remaining still die there. Uh, but eventually, and on average, takes us, yeah, 
six months, nine months a year, and we, we get a year, two of those ideas a year, or a year, yeah, 1.5 ideas a year, more or less, um, we find one that we love, and we pull the trigger, and, uh, and we're off to the races. What do you do? You put a million dollars in and say, achieve something in the next six months? We, yeah, we put 750K, uh, and with that 750K, because a normal pre-seed these days is like, 750k and normal seed is like two three million right so we were like okay we'll put 750k build the product see what we see if it actually tracks the way we expect it to and if it does then we'll put the next two million um and so we put in the first essentially the pre-seed round and the seed round uh the co-founders with us don't need to raise for the first um two years essentially we come on as executive chairman and co-founders we help them build the team we structure the thing and, and our deal is probably the most generous either we for the 750k and the fact that we're co-founders and we've and you've worked for that for us for like a year and a half and we've paid you a real salary, uh, we get 35%. The co-founders get 65%, and then the two million or either at eight million pre uh, or at market if you can get a better deal. I um, see. So there's a, another 25% of quote unquote dilution, but you share that as a group, and so well, and we dilute ourselves too. Right. That. Right. Yeah, so yeah. the founders might own 50% or whatever. Over 50% the, yeah. of the A round. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's amazing. So you have the whole mechanics figured out, and the time that this team of twenty, let's say, at the moment, is spending developing the idea until you pull the trigger, that's sort of like your fixed cost. You spend a few million dollars a year to spit up a company that you might invest a million dollars in every January. Yeah, no. So actually, the team is split in two. We have the investment team that is valuing the hundred inbound deals, um, and that's like two principals, my partner and I, um, and one analyst right now, so it'll be two associates. Uh, and then we have a bunch, an apprenticeship program where every year we go to the top business schools. We go to Harvard and MIT and Columbia and Warden and NYU and Stanford, and we interview the top like 300 students and, and to apply to work for us full-time during their summer, between the first and second year, part-time during their second year. Um, and and the idea is we teach them venture so they understand our heuristics or evaluation, the way the world works. And then when they graduate, we offer them a full-time EIR position to go and look for companies that we build collectively. So that's this uh, pool, and it's like five to ten people who are yeah, sitting no, in Yeah, no, no, we do, we do three a year on average. Okay, and so uh, they're sitting there making the PowerPoints out of that huge idea yeah. generation session. Maybe each one of them has ten that they're working on, and that goes down to three, goes down to two. Yeah, so, so it actually ends up being five, because we have the three that are currently in school. Oh, and then there's and the And then you have the two the from, the, from the year before that didn't usually, they graduate in May or June, six to nine months until we pull the trigger. And, and so usually there's five. The one doing most of the work are the ones actually looking for a company to build right now uh -huh. the apprentices you know when you're in business school and social obligations and working for us filtering and bound deal you're busy so mm -hmm. you you brainstorm some but it's not as though you're going really deep once you join full-time as an er upon graduation then you go really deep on the 150 ideas that were created collectively by frankly all of us i mean including the the you know if you could be our assistant or you could be our cfo etc like everyone comes up with the ideas uh, okay, more secrets from inside the lab here. So that hiring process, you meet 300 people and interview them? Not me. Uh, it's um, highly filtered. So this, we just finished uh, all the interviews for uh, 20, I guess, 2019 hires or 2020 graduates. Um, we had over 250 people in the pipeline. Um, by, they are filtered by the current apprentices, the AIRs, the, the principals, and ultimately I only talked to eight. Uh -huh. uh, and you hired? And we two? hired three. Three. Two or three. Net. Two okay. or three. Net, net, net. But frankly, the reality is we could almost have hired 
20, I mean, they're all, most of those people are amazing. I mean, like, they're top of their class, they're all ambitious, they're all driven, they're all really smart. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we over-index fit with us from a cultural perspective. Uh, we, you know, we're all quirky and nerdy and, 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 and entrepreneurial ambition, right? Like, most people who choose that path to go to business school are nicely entrepreneurial. So make sure that, and, and also, like, that they connect and like the things we like. Um, some of the issues or mistakes we've made in the past is someone really, you know, people might have cared about it and issues they were super passionate about, they just didn't work for us, right? Like mm -hmm. they were, they were, someone wanted to build a microfinance company in Mexico and then we we're like, yeah. We do marketplaces. Great and idea, then, but it's not maybe, for us. Or like biology or some of the, yes. the big deep Yeah, or hardware thing. or biology. Look, look, the number one thing we pass on every week uh, and we pass on 60 or 40 kind of off the bat is great companies not for us it's like micro satellite nano satellites and and robots and hardware and ai and like it all amazing things it's just not my expertise and and when you're really successful and at least when you think you're really smart um there's a danger of, of seeping into arrogance or like increasing what you what yeah, what you increase your circle of confidence. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, like I, my circle of confidence is marketplaces, whether I'm building them or investing in them, and those I understand really well. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm an expert at investing writ large. I don't invest anything in the public markets. I don't do anything in real estate. Like I know what I know, and maybe more importantly, I know what I don't know. And I think, mm -hmm. and I've seen it with really smart people. Like I've met, come across like amazing like heart surgeons or neurologists, and and they are so good in their profession, and it, it breeds a level of arrogance where like. Of course, I'm an amazing investor, and they start investing in whatever, and they lose all their money. And I'm like, yeah, I could have seen that coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, the people part of that for so you, you gave me a, a bit of insight in your thinking on how you get people in, but in that in our little framework, and maybe I'm overly reducing something that is far more nuanced, but it, it sort of fits nicely with my own handful of key drivers for for company creation and development. And the people one is it sounds really important. You referred to it a lot in evaluating companies, and certainly in backing some of the people that you have already hired to develop some of these yeah. things. What's the framework? Who are the people you back? I mean, you backed us. You backed me and Edward on Notel, sure. which was kind of surprising because it's sort of not. I mean, maybe yeah. it's a market. I'm going to ask. No, no, you, no, so, but what's the people dimension? Yeah, the well, so, so first of all, seventy percent of what we do is thesis-driven marketplaces. Thirty percent is frankly meets the other three criteria, but actually doesn't meet that that core thesis. Uh, you know, otherwise we wouldn't invest in either Halo or Notel or Zoom Pizza for that matter. Um, um, people. What what we find super compelling, or, or the founders we like the best, they're people that are amazing storytellers. So storytellers, and maybe it's it's unfair to introverts, and it's unfair to maybe people that are more shy. Uh, but someone who's an amazing storyteller. I mean, I think some of the great performers, it is a characteristic type that they are introverts. They like may be all, introverts. All your yeah. most they, famous favorites. They may, correct, but perhaps not in you know a party. Yes, but certainly on stage or in correct. A small but, but yes, so amazing storytellers. Yeah. I mean, storytelling skills. It's an extraordinary comparative advantage. Like you hire better people, you get free PR, you do better business deals, you raise money at a higher valuations. Things come so much easier. And so storytelling skills uh, and charisma are, are clear. And number two is given how driven we are and by unit economics, because we've seen so many companies where the top line growth is amazing. And for a while, the other VCs get, get excited and they put a lot of capital, et cetera. But ultimately, if you can't make the economics work, your your business blows up, and and we've seen these former high flyers that go to like whatever a billion in value, only to become down to 
brought down to earth and, and you know like think of gilts right like it was the top line revenue growth was amazing but uh, and Kevin by the way is an extraordinary entrepreneur uh, but like the unit economics were not I mean as arguably gilts is just one of his like base hits you compare him to his, his yes. sli- you know his grand slams I mean he, this I know, guy he creates, he's had amazing yeah. grand slams yeah. I don't know he's, he's extraordinary so uh, this was not meant at all as a criticism it's more um, yeah so if you build a company where the top line is great but the unit economics don't work Ultimately, the businesses don't really work, and, and so I care deeply. And so we want really people that are metrics-driven, analytical, uh, quantitative, that actually know the numbers and, and, and have a handle of them, and they're not, like, outsourcing them to their CFO. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, well, That starts to resemble your, like, high-achieving business school star filter as well, right? So, yeah. I mean, you want that and with established people who are actually building a company, you can't just look at their SAT score or something like that. There is, but you, want, you want some mastery of the fundamentals of the business and its economics, not just yeah. the design or the product, but what makes yeah, it a and, business. And frankly, number three is like how gritty and, 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 and tenacious we think they're going to be. And ideally, it's people who have faced failure before who or often people who come from more modest backgrounds. Uh, the who've had to overcome uh, difficulty in the past and, and um, the and one of those kinds of difficulty presumably is I was talking to Alex Mashinsky yesterday yeah. who you know amazing entrepreneur founder of Arbonnet and he has this other really cool project now but he also happens to have founded Uber five years before Uber and he's yeah. ruefully recounting to me the story of that experience and he's like Summarizing Travis as a guy who founded 10 failed companies and lost $100 million for other people before coming to the table on his next company, Uber. Sort of asking the question of why would you back this dude in that time and that place? And Mm -hmm. actually, you're supplying part of the answer, which is like, okay, other people's money was used to get this guy ready. I do not mind backing failed entrepreneurs. Actually, if you have to choose a a second-time founder who failed the first time or a new founder, the second time founder is, is, is typically way better to back because he, especially if he failed, he's going to, I just need to believe that he's learned the lessons, but if he's learned the lessons, you know, he learned on someone else's dime and, and, and they're still back ready. at it. Right. Cause like a classic failure mode in, in entrepreneurship is people just leave the discipline yeah. after trying thing out and I can't take it again. If you've got, therefore, as you say, the grit, but the, you know, the sort of control over your neuroses to get through that level of storm, which yeah. returns regularly. It's never over. You raise 10, Absolutely. you raise 100, you raise a billion, your problems just get yeah. more complicated. And there's more people who are going to get fired if you fuck up. I mean, it is... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and look, the some of the mistakes we've made is that, like, n- sometimes it's hard to tell. Like, the thing is, if you... We, we backed founders, uh, and, and not in the program, and they, all the founders were amazing, more in the on the investing side, who... You know, top of their class at Harvard, then worked at McKinsey, then went to HBS, top of their class, and and amazing orators, amazing quantitative knowledge, etc. Um, the thing is, they never failed in their life, right? Like, so everything had come easily, and so when the the going got rough, they they bailed, and and it was hard to, to you know, it was hard to real, you it was hard to test, especially based on the, we we decide so quickly, like on the basis of two one hour conversations, we decide in one week we decide whether we invest or not to to evaluate that. There's no amazing way that it's Mark more Andreessen like, has something nice on this. You remember his classic series of nine or twelve posts or whatever yes. about entrepreneurship way back in the day. And one of the posts was about interviewing candidates, not about founders really, but I think the insight on this one is like there is a thing you need and you need to see the story of overcoming. 
if you see that story of overcoming in someone's personal narrative, as you're describing in some of your hiring, like, yeah. oh, this guy grew up with nothing or in some kind of inflation-wrecked country or, you know, you know, family loss or something like that. But this gold-plated resume of someone that just got through every single thing, it handed to them, and maybe yeah. they're brilliant, too, but without having accumulated the scars... Those scars will come. Our business is not straightforward. And they, they would be much safer at Goldman or McKinsey. Correct. And, and it's hard to tell if they're going to be able to deal with it. But the thing is, if you've never failed, uh, maybe it also means you'd like to be in an environment where you know where the rules of the game are. Like, you know, how to do well at, at school is very clear. How to do well at McKinsey or Goldman is actually pretty clear as well. How to do well as an entrepreneur where you have infinite things you could be working on and essentially it's a massive prioritization exercise like we live in a world of limited tech resources limited money and limited time and you need to optimize all three of them extremely well and it's as much as choosing what you're not doing as it is what you are doing an appetite for risk i mean so if, you, if you've never failed you haven't tried like yeah, what exactly. on earth have you been up to exactly Just coasting well yeah stuff. but there is a clear path right like for most people like society there is a a societally acceptable clear path of like I go to high school from high school go to college from college dude the MBA could have done a physics PhD yeah yeah. or the you know McKinsey star could have gone into the CIA I mean there are very high prestige but high adversity assignments that were invisible to us when we look at the high credential it's a people product and for you, it's business model, marketplace, and financeability. And financeability, and when you're making the investment, uh, is the price right? Is the time right? Is the entry point? Yeah. The valuation? Yeah, and, and, what will and, happen and financeability later. does matter because yeah. the you know like the, there is a venture market that is not us that exists in the outside world, and clearly you know your seed has to be kind of mil- or pre-seed or angel round is like a million bucks, and your seed round is like right. two to three, and, and there's a, a certain amount like of time, and it's not seven, and your if B you're right too 15, early, yeah, exactly. it will never happen. The B will never happen. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. And, and so I care a lot about like how much capital are you raising, how much capital, where will that take you? Do I think this is the right place for you to be in order to raise the next round, mm-hmm. uh, and how much capital do you need overall? And like yeah, all like those the things shape matter. of the story, it is extraordinarily rare that anyone breaks the patterns on. Correct. That, that that thing that you just laid out. So yeah. you just got to build a machine. You got to build a game that will go through that life cycle, even if you plan on the other end to be the next Amazon or whatever. But you, yeah. it, it's much better to play within this the, the boundaries of this. If if you're outside yeah. of it, it, it everything's just becomes so much harder. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why if you need a hundred million upfront to launch your business, you know maybe it's not a venture backable business. I mean, either you're rich and you may, you had money from before, I like Elon, or there are or you should be part of like a corporate venture or like a corporate arm that's funding you like it's not really a venture business most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables those are all great things to do maybe at work maybe not at work but it's completely missing the point which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, Having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, 
where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. So you asked me why I'm doing this uh, series or what the hell it actually is in the know. Bumping into my friends and colleagues and fellow travelers. Here I am hanging out with one of my backers, investors and friends in Notel. And I, I've been... I've been raising my ambition on this a little bit. I, I just really started sincerely talking to people maybe three, four months ago. Uh, I bumped into Amy Cuddy, and we did something. I did something with Kevin Ryan. I did something with Martha Stewart, Stephen Wolfram, and I started realizing, you know, I'm learning a lot from this. And maybe if I give myself a alternate identity for this sequence, I can take even broader and more general purpose lessons from it. So instead of taking from you, which is like a, I mean, an unusually well-thought-out kind of monolithic view of the universe. Not everyone <laughs> starts with that. There's a lot of sort of nibblers out there, and then there's these, these kind of hedgehoggy people like you. And um, uh, instead of just taking, like, a war story or asking just some stuff that is of interest to me, I thought, what if I frame it as, like, okay, I, I have, like, you know, I have maybe 22 or 23 episodes of the podcast. What if I want to make this thing the world's largest, furthest-reaching and influential media property? How would we get there? And with that framing of a question, I've been interrogating some of my um, different friendly um, uh, interlocutors on on themes related to that. And I think you know one one of the really framework driven approaches that you have is partly about idea selection. And I think it's probably your most famous blog post, your nine business selection criteria. Yeah. It may or may not be true that that's the most views. It's the one I most often yeah. refer to and send people to. Yeah, I'm about to update I, that one because I it's teach really, it in my class. Yeah. And now it's five years of, of Columbia undergrads taking startup classes that are like learning and memorizing your nine business selection criteria and some other ones. I, I compress it and I do it in a somewhat different way, but I do present it that way. And I'm curious, like that to me is, is one of your really big sort of knowledge objects that you've created and sure. polished. And clearly it sounds like some new stuff is coming on that. And then evidently in the world of marketplaces, you have all these patterns on how something should grow. And you, you must you must believe yeah. in patterns since all you do is publish patterns all the time. So talk to yeah. me about the nine business selection criteria. I'll, I'll put a link to that so you don't have to like talk through all nine of them, but just give me where it came from when you wrote it, which is a decade ago, I think, sure. and what's changed. The I was CEO of probably Zingy when I was when I was writing these and, and ready investing in startups, and and I realized the I liked investing and I liked meeting young entrepreneurs who had amazing ideas and I liked being part of the story and being helpful to them. But I couldn't allocate that much time to angel investing. I, I, I was not a VC. I didn't have a fund. I didn't have a team. I needed to come up with heuristics or shortcuts to to make to help my decision making. And and I try to codify what are rules of thumbs that would work that would work that would be helpful and and frankly i came up with this in 1998 i published it i think in 2005 but the or 2006 but the and i also use the same framework for coming up with my ideas but what the those nine business selection criteria are are actually really the sub heuristic of one of the four that I have at the top level, which is like, is this a good business? And is this a good business? Is nine sub sub selection criteria, which is like total restable market size. You know, is the market growing? Is there risk of margin compression, deviation? How fragmented is? I mean, all that stuff actually falls in that one. There's sub heuristics of one of the buckets. Now, of course, if I'm building my own company, I the team is exogenous to that. And if I'm uh, building my own company, the valuation is also exogenous to that, which is why I focus on the on those. But 
as an investor, when I look at what I'm, what I'm, when I, what, what, what invest in, this is one of the four buckets when you also include the overarch, the other category of like, is it a marketplace? Does it meet my thesis? Um, the ninth one is like, do you like it? Oh yeah, no, do, I, do I like it? <laughs> Absolutely. And no, but it's super key. Like, do I like, because there are a lot of businesses that make sense, but like, I wouldn't necessarily want to be invested in like, you know, like whatever, like selling tobacco or, mm-hmm. or, or, or frankly, even, especially if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, like a CEO, like making widgets. Now, it wasn't always true. I've, I've, I've actually it's weird, though, that some boring shit gets interesting once you get into it. But yeah. on the prima facie level, I totally agree. I don't want to wander into an area I hate. That said, the most, the, maybe the most relevant content I've created of late is how do you make the most important decisions of your life? Yeah, so I, 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 your latest hobby in your personal cognitive science department that you run? Essentially. It's like how... How do you make sure that you're deliberate and introverted? And the last block was like 5,200 words, which is the step three of that decision-making fr- framework. And, and and when I go through, not sure actually where I was going with that, but the... Well, in deciding on a big business, I guess, if you want to get involved in oh, business, yes. investor What are the constraints you're willing to put in on, on your ideas? And so when I made that, when I wrote that first email to myself, like in 2001, and like the internet bubble at burst, I'd gone from like hero to zero, like the company, I was fired from the company I founded, like I went from the cover of every magazine to like losing everything. And I thought long and hard about what I wanted to do next. And... And the ultimate conclusion from that introspective process was I want to be an entrepreneur. And I love the process of being an entrepreneur and the day-to-day of being an entrepreneur, kind of regardless of the job that I do. And ideally, I would do a job that I like. But we now live in a world where capital is not available, where the internet is kind of dead or looked like it was 2001. Yeah, yeah, 2001. Um, I'm willing to compromise on everything and anything in order to be an entrepreneur. So the company I picked to build then was actually an idea, Zingy, which you know well, yeah. where actually I didn't like the products I was selling. I didn't like the... Ringtones for... I was selling ringtones on phones. traditional phones to, to teenagers, essentially, and dealing with music labels who <laughs> I thought were total idiots and didn't understand anything, frankly, about even their own self-interest. I was dealing with cell phone companies, which I didn't feel... I, I felt kind of the same about. Oh, I hate uh, and, and music publishers, and frankly, artists. And and I didn't like the products I was selling. I didn't like the people I was interacting with in any of the categories, like the suppliers, the demand, et cetera. But because it was a business that I thought I could make profitable with very little capital in a world of capital constraints, and actually that turned out to be true, I, I chose that. And I was willing to compromise on that. Now, of course, when I went back and did the same exercise when I was CEO of OLX and considered what to do next, now I, I I didn't have the same constraints since I was I clearly like you had more and money I, and there was more venture yeah I, and doing you. an idea that I that mm-hmm. I was that I wanted to do mm-hmm. was way higher on my list right mm-hmm. so it's also important to realize what 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 constraints you you live with but I I wouldn't impose like oh I need to be passionately in love with this idea but obviously way better if you can have it but yeah, it's, it's not plus. always possible it's a plus yeah. yeah I mean have you found though like do, I work in real estate. Notel's a real estate business. Yeah. We don't even work in the fun part of real estate, like houses (laughs) or vacations. We work in office. Yeah. And we work with, you know, some of them are going to listen to the podcast, but, like, it's a category that's not like me. Yes. You know, none of them do the kinds of stuff I do. I just never really, I I cannot find sources of energy from some of these folks that I have to hang out with. And the category, it moves so slowly, it's so traditional and so fragmented, it has none of the mechanics that would have made it fun. I would not have chosen a prime of fascia. Yeah. It just kind of sprang up under my feet while I was 
focusing yeah. on something different, kind of like Fleming and the Petri dish on the windowsill yeah. and all that and penicillin. And that's amazing. And then the mechanics of business that's growing is kind of cool. But then what I found as I got into it, as I got deep inside it, I started finding stuff I loved. Absolutely. Is I was really surprised. Look, I threw and I throw a lot of stuff on the wall. And the if you'd asked me in 2012 of all the things I thought of doing, et cetera, and that I tried. I mean, I tried to run, like, part of Cuba. I tried to buy Craigslist and, or run Craigslist. I tried to buy eBay Classifieds. I, I mean, I did. I tried millions of things. And those things on, you know, a priori appeared more interesting and compelling and large and disrupting, et cetera, rather than, like, just oh, build a company a year and, like, invest in a whole bunch of companies. Um, I think at the end of the day, you also go with what works. And once things work and they take on a life of their own, you find a lot of interesting challenges. And I think that's true of almost anything that you're doing. Um, yeah, well, momentum makes things interesting. And then lots more people. And one of the really rewarding things in our business is just we're attracting all these amazing people. And it's, like, so fun yeah. to work with them. And it's really quite But, but clearly being in things that work is super rewarding so right like it and it gives you it gives you the permission to test and to be creative and i like so how do you make the most important decisions of your life i mean it sounds like you're going to go back and polish these nine business criteria from 12 13 years ago for the benefit of the world it is a humanitarian undertaking thank you very much you have our appreciation but as you polish it perhaps part of of what's in your mind is this opus you've written this half book that you've put on the internet about making the hardest decision in the world I, so it just occurred to me as I was, you know, as I was reflecting on my personal choices that most people don't actually question the choices they have. They happen because of momentum, or they happen because uh, uh, of happenstance, or they happen because it is the expected thing to do. As I said, you know, you go to college. Uh, well, you go from high school, you go to college. You get a job. You get a girlfriend. You get engaged. You get, you know, two kids and and a dog. And 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 so there's this kind of this, and it's even on, well, there's. I can talk about where those things come from, but there is kind of these sociological and societal expectations, and and people should really question whether or not it is right for them. And and so the best way to do that, and there, there are two, is this four-step process that I use. So one is take a step back and 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 do an introspective analysis. Um, of where you are and how satisfied where you are with your life, whether or not you're as satisfied as you've ever been, and what are the things you would change or could change in your life, and then freeform, and this is all in writing, and the, and the, and the, the putting it pen to paper, like changing the things in your mind, putting them to paper, actually crystallizes your thinking so much. Uh, and so putting it on paper, then in a freeform way, lists all the things you could be doing, and actually put no constraints. I actually like I, I would like become a public intellectual. I mean, like things that are and things that may not even be realistic because they require either expertise I don't have or third party approval. And I do this at two periods of my time. I try to do it every other year at the least. Either when you feel malaise and there's something that like doesn't feel quite right. Uh, so, for instance, when I see a OLX on paper, top of the world, all these employees, accolades, super successful, but like. I didn't like the job anymore. Like all of a sudden, we're part of a publicly traded company. My job becomes like creating these annual budgets and quarterly budgets and updates for the quarterly budget. It's like I'm no longer playing with product and doing really fun things. And even though on paper, if any outside looks amazing, eh. So when there's these malaise, definitely worth considering. And, and the question number one is, should I leave OLX? And if I did, what would I do? Mm-hmm. And that, that that which is a lot to that. But it was also when I left my the other company and I was at the bottom of the world what do I do next? Do I go back to McKinsey? 
The other time you should do this, by the way, is if you There are suckers who made that choice back then because that was a default option. And yeah. It took some great fortitude for you to not return back to the firm and waste five years. Some of your most creative and productive. Absolutely. Uh, the other time you should do this, frankly, is if you've never questioned your choices. It's like, let's be introspective and deliberate. Um, so step one is like write down, A, your state of mind and all the options. Step two is then share that with friends, families, mentors. Um, now, many of them are very different from us, and they're not as entrepreneurial or risk-taking in my case, but frankly, it doesn't matter. The, the questions they ask, the iteration, the conversation around this. Or the surprise in what you've shared with them. It's a beta test of like a new you, right? I mean, yeah. and you're like, whoa, I didn't know you love cooking so much. You want to just go join the Cordon Bleu? And yeah. it's like, wow, you've revealed something. And, Let me support you. And that process further crystallizes your thinking. And then step three. So usually, if you have a binary decision to make, the answer kind of comes in its own. Um, if it's like, do I do A or B? But usually when it's more open-minded, like I left my job, what do I do next? Um, step three is I throw a whole bunch of stuff on the wall. And so in my first email from 2012, when I was CEO of LX, I was like, do I leave LX? And then I came up with eight ideas. From these eight ideas, I tried all eight essentially, and then most of them failed, but led to other ideas. So I ended up trying like 20 different things. So I throw a lot of stuff on so the wall do to see what some sticks. of the stuff. Yeah, do the stuff, see what sticks, and see what you like. Like like the process for becoming public intellectual, for instance, is you need to pick a topic. <laughs> Happiness. You, can, uh, you need to, you need to pick, a, pick a topic, and then you need to write these op- op-eds uh, that are very, you know, like 800 words, and you have to get it to the editor of the New York Times or the Washington Post, and you have them get it published. I mean, and you... And I realized I didn't like the process. I preferred, like, just writing on my blog whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, yeah, okay, drop, drop that. It didn't make sense. So throw a lot of stuff on the wall to see if it sticks. Um, and then just run with whatever sticks. In our lives, in our personal lives, we don't iterate and we don't, we don't A, we don't throw enough stuff on the wall, and B, we don't iterate. Like, Everything in, in, as a, in a startup, you test literally everything. You test the business model, the color, the width, the the, the wording. That mo- that iteration needs to happen in our personal lives until we reach and we find what works for us. And then number four is look at the lessons learned in that process uh, to make sure you don't make the same mistakes on a go forward basis. And then go back to step one and start over at least every two years. And that's and that's been really effective for me. Huh, so do you have a, like a biannual board meeting or something, or yeah. do you just do it with yourself? I do it with myself. So I, the uh-huh. email, it's an email I write to myself, but then I share it with everyone else. Uh-huh. Uh, but the same way, like if you're in a relationship, like you should have relationship OKRs, and you should actually... It's a bit nerdy, Fabrice. Yeah, yeah, well, you should, you should have... It's good to check in. Like, yeah. things... T- how are we doing? How are we doing? Yeah. What what may works? What doesn't work? Uh, like, your board meeting or review. And, and if you don't force that conversation, it just doesn't happen. Uh, I mean, but then again, in my case, it's the last needed because I, 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 I preach and practice radical honesty and radical transparency. So mm-hmm. whatever is on my mind, and that's true professionally and personally... Right. You're getting lots of feedback all out. the time yeah. and you're coursing through life. Okay. I want to explore one of your public intellectual endeavors for a little bit, and it does connect actually to this whole theme because you've laid out a highly rational pattern and program-driven process for finding things that work, companies that work, but actually finding things that you like and want to do that reward you and and are satisfying. And, And you got me started on something a little while back when you told me uh, I don't know, like some Swedish journalist had called to interview you about happiness because you were one of the leading intellectuals in the world on happiness. You had started spending lots of time on it. I remember it was probably a couple years ago that you, that you were spending time doing that stuff. And, and last Over year... Over a decade ago as well. Was it that long ago <laughs> oh, yeah. that you were writing about it? 
because in the last few years, you've, I mean, I'm sure you've followed with interest, and who knows, maybe you even are cited in, in some of these, these writings, um, you know, Sonia Lubomorsky's book about happiness mm-hmm. and um, that famous class at Yale from a year and a half yep. ago. And uh, I was at I, Aspen Ideas Festival, and I was listening to somebody talk about, like, a bunch of the pr- present contemporary theory, and some of it's from psychology, and some of it is uh, behavioral. Yep. Um, and uh, happiness as an important aim as you know in the ancient greek it's eudaimonia and is it epicurean or is it aristotelian and whatever so it's something and i think in our culture we've always known that happiness was a thing but it's elevation perhaps most recently and maybe in the context of millennials or whatever as like a major aim of life not just productivity and poverty alleviation whatever like i want to be happy okay great so we're at a certain place the place i've been transposing some of these ideas over the last six or nine months is facing a different kind of happiness it's the happiness of groups as our company here there was there was the risk that I'd be where you might have gotten to uh, at OLX with five thousand people around the world, mm-hmm. and I think that risk continues to be there. Like who knows what it's going to be like when I'm there? But you know, we were one, then four, then fifteen, then thirty, and that was last January. Now we're three hundred and thirty, mm-hmm. and my daily rhythms and the stuff I got to do was going to have to change a lot in order to keep this happy family happy in the way that it needs to be in its own special way. And um, as I was looking at that, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is, I don't like this. I actually don't like people stuff. Like, that's not, I like to do things that I like, and I only want to do those things. I don't want to do any other things. I don't want to modify my behaviors in all these litany of ways, according to the advice of all these so-called experts who've never run anything themselves. And every founder or CEO you talk to all has their own sort of thing. And is there no science or process to deploy to just fix this problem the way a a right-thinking, top-down sort of analyst might prescribe. And I have spent, actually, the last six or nine months really thinking about it a lot, and you you must have reflected from time to time and all the time on this problem of the happiness of groups and teams. You've been designing something for FJ Labs, and you had situations at OLX, and uh, regale me, please. Well, What's also interesting, even happiness writ large, and then we can talk about happiness for groups, is how simple-minded humans are and we are in the sense that the causality um, of what causes happiness often is reversed relative to our intuition. You may think, oh, I'm happy, therefore I smile. But actually, if you smile, it makes you happier. And so, Yeah, the pencil all, trick. You, know, you bite a pencil for 30 seconds. There's so many ways um, that you can actually make... People can become happier by, and, and, and I mean by statistically significantly, sustainably increasing your mean level of happiness, uh, despite hedonic adaptation, where people adapt, adjust to changes in their circumstances by doing really simple things. And because if I tell you the theory is like, oh, be grateful, and you should be grateful because you're living in the most peaceful and prosperous time in the history of humanity, you actually have the opportunity to think about happiness as opposed to barely surviving, working 80, 80 hours a week to make ends meet, and you're going to be hungry most of the time, which is true of life 200 years ago, and frankly, is still true of life in many developing countries today. Um, the thing is, it doesn't resonate with people. Like, the theory is true, and you should be grateful, but like the... So the biomechanical causes of happiness are yeah. not satisfying. I mean, yeah. but that, that's so back the to the origin debates, right? Like, I, when the Epicureans and the Aristotelians or the Stoics or whatever are giving you their theories of happiness, some of them encourage you to just be happy and do what yes. makes you feel happy. And if you give the argument that a pencil bitten is well, that it takes to be happy, it seems so cheap, it's actually not real happiness, it's a fantasy. It's Yeah, but it's, my experience is like, okay, tell someone, be grateful, doesn't actually help. 
but you can actually make them grateful by like just writing down every night before they go to bed three things that happened to them today that was great is like it was sunny it was warm someone smiled at me and I had a group you know I had an I lived another day whatever lived, like, I mean, there's a lot to be and, and, yeah. and, and there's a lot of things to be grateful for and yeah. so these little things which are tiny like you write down three little things that happened to you today that were great and you write different things and you just journal them and also putting it in paper is really important especially doing it right before you go to bed because sleep uh, helps with memory consolidation. You can actually completely rework your, your 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 neural pathways, and so there are a set of nine tricks that you can do to basically increase, statistically significantly sustainably increase your mean level of happiness. And so, first, there's that. Now, in terms of a group dynamic and a group setting, the well, already a lot of what you said seems it's it's a, it's weird that I hadn't thought more about it. Yeah, like just yeah, I mean, exercise and eating right and yeah. sleeping enough there your personal happiness is going to be a lot better yeah and those are be grateful only three. and smile yeah, exactly. a bit and have friends so how to be more optimistic exactly so yeah. a lot of those things and it's and so like simple groups, steps but, and, but steps. for groups it must be true too it's also so, true for it's all these things are true yeah. for groups um the thing is group sizes matter right like there's the dunbar number where like beyond 150 it's hard to like create group cohesion um and, and I see it also when you're managing software development teams. Like, what is the ideal size of of, of your uh, of a team? Like, you have a team lead, and then you, but you need the QA person, the project manager, and like and like. So it looks like oh, if it's groups of like five to seven, they're super cohesive and they're a core team and they're working super well hand in hand. You know, if all of a sudden it's a massive team where like no one has like ownership, et cetera, it, it becomes disintegrated. So I think the way you structure your hierarchy such that you have actually have these. Groups, cellular groups that can self-identify. Yeah, I mean, when we do the research in our company, and I'm yeah. sure this is true in every company, you'll get a very different number for how people feel about the whole company versus their team. They love their team. We're yeah. the best. I like each other. Oh, but I expect so much more from the overall company. Now, one reader of that data might say, oh, my God, at the company level, we're screwing up, but we have a few pockets of high-quality yeah. leadership. Actually, it's just the mechanics of Correct. group size. As long as all of your groups are happy, and then they, they, they take the mean of that. That's like like what they think of the company as a whole. That's less relevant. I mean, it's it, it's it's meaningful mm-hmm. to the extent that you may have a negative image. Like you you know, I can imagine like the someone's the company is doing something reasonably bad or perceived to be negative, but like they love their group, right? Yeah, we I love can think of hearing at Uber when Uber is in a PR shitstorm, exactly, or, 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 yeah. or Facebook today, yeah. right? Like yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a that's a group happiness hack is to think about the cellular level and of course to think about the personal happiness drivers. And I wonder if there are other mechanics that you had to deploy to change how you behaved or ask your managers to behave. Maybe not just about happiness, but just about the health, wellness, and efficacy of the group. I mean, happiness is a little bit yeah. glib to describe it as a as a feeling that groups have, but maybe that's real. Uh, high performing teams look a certain way like you may know how Sandy Pentland from MIT has written about social physics and the Mm -hmm. way different group dynamics work and there are a bunch of patterns that emerge that that are descriptively true and then he finds experimentally interventions that demonstrate them to be causally true people take turns they're not hierarchical they don't interrupt too much they're engaged with each other facing each other a handful of other things diversity actually surprisingly turns out to be a powerful driver of that too cool so groups look this way and then they seem to work better produce better outcomes and they're actually reporting better happiness. This is a handful of the mechanics that I've been thinking about and starting to deploy here in the company, and they can feel a bit um, a bit flat and mechanical, kind of like, hey, everybody, journal and hold a pencil in your mouth. And You know, I've... I got I've got I got over that. Originally I'm like, you know, it feels so artificial to like, oh, write three three good things that happened to you today. 
and but it works. And and, and be, because we're simpler minded than we think, it's like you know, I make you hold the cold the cold uh, glass of water, and then you read a passage about characters, and I ask you to describe the characters, and you tell me they're cold. You know, <laughs> the, the the these uh, you know Dan Ariely, you know, um, effectively yes. irrational, etc. Type things actually are completely true. And so, I I'm as long as the intent is positive, and 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 you also. Look at it, t- t- tongue tongue in cheek. Don't don't take it too seriously. Uh, and 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 yeah, like such. treat it like the quirks of your culture. Like, hey, hey man, we're weird. We do these things here. Exactly, mm-hmm. but but they actually work. And so mm-hmm. I'm not. I I got over the artificiality of doing these things because they're effective. Amazing. Yeah. Reese, thank you for talking to me. That's all I wanted to talk about. We could go all day, all night, whatever. But that's what's on my mind right now. And cool. I'm looking forward to the publication of your nine. Point five business selection <laughs> criteria.